seat. You ever noticed when someone can be so focused on something that they miss what's going on around them? Uh, I don't know if you are like that, but I know that there are times when I'm like mega focused on something and something can be going on around me and I have no earthly idea of what even happened. And somebody may say, hey, Scott, did you? No. Hey, daddy, 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 daddy. There are times when my kids can yell the word daddy from the backseat of the minivan because, yeah, that's how I roll from the backseat of the minivan 17 times, and, and I'm so focused in thinking about something, I hardly hear them. Maybe you've experienced that or you've seen that with, uh, with somebody else. Maybe your husband's watching football and like he's so focused and you're like, hey, honey, can you take out the trash? And like he doesn't even, like, that's a foreign language. This happens all the time. And you may not think it does, but we all fall prey to divided attention in our lives. Let me give you a little test on, on what I mean. Let me, let me show you a little video here. And, and basically, all you need to do is just follow the instructions of the video. And for some of you who have seen a video like this before, this one's a little bit different. So just follow along and, uh, and, and let's take this test together. Count how many times the players wearing white pass the ball. The correct answer is 16 passes. Did you spot the gorilla? For people who haven't seen or heard about a video like this before, about half missed the gorilla. If you knew about the gorilla, you probably saw it. But did you notice the curtain changing color or the player on the black team leaving the game? Are you smart, Alex? Like, I saw the gorilla. Let's rewind and watch it again. Here comes the gorilla, and there goes a player, and the curtain is changing from red to gold. By the way, did you see the gorilla come right through our... Uh, There's a whole body of research. Uh, from folks like the psychologists who came up with this video that is beginning to show that our attention can only meaningfully be focused on one thing at a time. There's this sort of myth of multitasking that came with the age of computers as if, you know, more technology and more information was going to allow us to do lots more things, but, but really just more technology and more information and more access to that information just meant that we got to be more dis- distracted. Uh, Divided attention is a real problem in our lives. The psychologists call it (laughs) inattentional blindness or perceptual blindness. It's our attention being divided among too many things. And the body of research is continuing to show that really, friends, you can only meaningfully be focused on one thing at a time. 
every once in a while after service, somebody will say, hey, I'm sorry about my cell phone going off or sorry my kid was screaming or, or sorry I had to leave halfway through. And, and most of the time I think, okay, thanks for saying sorry, but I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, I am, like I'm thinking, what does God want me to say through this? And that's my focus. You could be sitting there going, ah, and I like, hardly will see it. We can, we can really only meaningfully be focused. Don't get any ideas. We can really be meaningfully focused on just about one thing at a time. And friends, this problem of divided attention isn't just for teenagers with cell phones or text messaging or people who are driving distracted, which isn't just teenagers, it's, it's anybody with a phone in a car who's distracted. This is a very real problem. It can mean a whole host of things. It means, like at work, when you are paid to do this one thing, your attention is divided because of the expectations of a whole bunch of other folks around you that keep you from doing the specific things that you are paid to do, the most important things. Some of you maybe are familiar with uh, the old essay called The Tyranny of the Urgent. Uh, if you don't know of that, we've got copies of them in the resource table, or you can look through that on the life group study. We end up, because of the divided attention in our lives, we end up working on the things that are urgent or that others say are urgent, and we miss the things that are important. And friends, this isn't just teenagers with cell phones. This is a problem, potentially, in all of our lives. It can mean we end up not paying attention to the real needs of those closest to us. Divided attention is a real problem. And I, and I stand before you today as a fellow struggler in divided attention. Like, I really struggle with this. I have a, I have a hard time keeping focused on what's important. In other words, keeping focused on the things that I know God has gifted and called me to do that may be entirely different than the things others around me may be calling me to do. Divided attention, friends, is what happens when the kingdom's concern is not our central focus. Uh, For the believer in Christ, divided attention is one of the greatest tools of the evil one to render us ineffective for the sake of the gospel. And friends, Paul is, Paul is writing Philippians because he knows that when trouble hits, when circumstances become difficult, when life happens, it is really easy to lose that bigger picture focus of God's intent for our lives, <laughs> of God's reason for creating us. And what Paul knows for the Philippians is that this can keep us growing, this divided attention problem can keep us from growing into the fruitful kingdom worker God's called and created us to be. And so he writes to help them maintain focus. If we lose our focus on the most important thing, if we lose our focus on the cross, we will create around us in our lives a kingdom of self that keeps us from growing into fruitful kingdom work. Those are the stakes in the matter, friends. And so that's why Paul is writing to the Philippians. He says, continue to grow into that. 
joyfully grow into fruitful kingdom workers. Let me show you how we get there with the most important thing being the focus of the cross. Jump in at 127 or we'll pick it up here in Paul's letter here. He says this in 127. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now look at just that first phrase in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now most Bible translations leave that first part of verse 27 as sort of just a generic live in a manner worthy. Just kind of a generic live, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. But I think Paul chooses a particular word here because it has political overtones of living like a citizen of a particular kingdom. That's the word that he uses there where it says, let your manner of life, let your manner of life, and then be worthy is further on. But let your manner of life here is, is, a, is a word that has political overtones of living like you're a citizen of a particular kind of kingdom or, or a world or society. And so he chooses that word on purpose here because he's saying you must live like citizens of this new kingdom. Live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And this isn't just a, a quote, heaven that's out there somewhere that you go to when you die. This is the kingdom of heaven that is established in the cross of Christ. This is a kingdom that arrived in Jesus that he's talking about. So he's saying live like a citizen of that kingdom that is already here. If you're reading the NLT, the New Living Translation, I think it gets it right. Uh, most of the translations don't, don't go here because they kind of leave it a little generic. But the NLT says this. We'll put this on screen for you. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. So Paul is saying, above all else, that's what that word only means. If you, if you don't catch everything else, if, if life has 10,000 things going on and you can't keep them all in balance and your head is spinning, on top of all that, there's also opposition that we'll get to later on. Don't forget this. If there's something that I've told you, it's this. This is the bottom line. That's kind of what he's saying here. Above all, live like a citizen of a kingdom. And this is the, the SWV that we're going to show you here. Live like a citizen of a kingdom that has good news to share. By the way, the SWV is the Scott Wakefield version. Live like a citizen of a kingdom that has good news to share. And yes, I can go back to the Greek, so don't mess. If you think that I'm being a heretical, by the way, of coming up with my own translation, go ahead and do your study. Uh, all the world's greatest scholars agree that the context says... That Paul is saying, live like a citizen of this new kingdom. Live like someone who has good news to share. That's sort of the topic, sentence. That's the theme of everything that follows here. So keep reading. Verse 27. Paul is saying here, live like a citizen of a kingdom that has good news to share. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, whether I'm with you as I've been before, or I, I'm here in prison, or I die in prison, I will know, I may hear of you, verse 27, that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind. 
Now press pause again, circle, underline, highlight that phrase there, standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Because, because this spirit togetherness, this mind oneness idea that Paul is talking about here is where we're headed when it comes to maintaining focus. For us to do what God's called us to do, for us to become who God's called us to become, it's going it's to mean being of one mind, of one spirit. He's saying to stand firm requires that. Now, before we keep moving in the text, which we're going to in just a second, let me just make a little note about this word spirit. A point of clarification uh, here. When Paul writes that they must stand firm in one spirit, uh, I don't think he's making an explicit reference to the Holy Spirit here. Though the Holy Spirit is certainly involved in the unity that is required for maintaining focus. Paul certainly wouldn't deny that. But he's not making an explicit reference to the Spirit here. Paul uses the Spirit here just to refer to an attitude of oneness of purpose and, and a oneness in their attitude. So they've got to be of the same Spirit. They've got to be uh, unified in purpose because this is not going to get any easier. There will be opponents. There will be division. There will be distractions. So it's going to take, he says, standing firm. It's going to take standing firm. A lion-hearted sort of focus and courage to maintain focus on the cross and the purpose of God when things all around, when people are around are clamoring for your time and your attention. So he wants to rest assured that they're standing firm in one spirit. So, so how do they do that? How do they stand firm? He explains it. Keep reading. He explains it here in uh, verse 27. He says, With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's the reason why they're doing this, for the faith of the gospel. And then verse 28, Do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. So, so to stand firm in one spirit has two components to it here in uh, 27 and 8 that he points out that they must, number one, strive side by side. Number two, not be frightened. Those are the two components here. So it's almost like there's an equation that he's, that he's giving them here, the Philippians. He's saying, this is what it means to stand firm. Standing firm, we could say, is another way of Maintaining focus. That's the kind of focus, by the way, if you're a redeemed believer in Jesus, that resulted in him going to the cross. So, so Paul is saying, like I have done as an example for you, you are to do. Like I have done as an example to you of what Jesus did for me and for you, you are to do as well. So maintain your focus. Standing firm is the formula here that he gives us is two components. It's striving side by side, striving together, plus don't be frightened. We're going to say it this way. Don't be intimidated. When you are standing firm, meaning you're striving together, and you're not intimidated by those who oppose you, then you know you're standing firm. Now, he says, as is alluded to there, keep reading there in uh, verse, uh, where are we at here, 29? 
28. Opposition is mentioned here by Paul because the opposition is what can divide our attention. The opposition is what can divide our attention. And Paul here, notice in the text, he's not defining the opponents as any particular group of people. He doesn't say like he does in some other places in his writings, I'm talking about these people who are opposing you in this kind of way. He doesn't give a whole lot of color to it or context to it. He's talking, though, about a particular kind of opposition And we know that because of the context of what's going on here in Philippians. Remember from last week, we talked about their partnership in the advance of the gospel. If you need that, go back to last week online or order a DVD. The partnership in the advance of the gospel is the reason he's writing to them. He says, I pray for you always with joy because the gospel took root in you and continued to grow. And we are side by side striving together. We are in this gospel together. So he is writing in the context of partnership in the advance of the gospel, Philippians 1.5 and 1.12, if you want to look there. So, who are the opponents? In basic terms, the opponents are those who oppose the gospel. And this is going to be a little more profound than it sounds. Those who oppose the gospel are simply those who oppose the gospel. (laughs) That's some amazing reasoning, Scott. Let me tell you what I mean. How do I know if someone's opposing the gospel? Well, you've heard of, you know, you might be a redneck if. We're going to do, you might be opposing the gospel if. That's going to be our version. You might be opposing the gospel if. And before we get into it, Notice the title is you might be opposing the gospel if. We are not just talking about them out there as the only people who could possibly be opposing the gospel. Any one of us could be in opposition to the advance of the gospel taking ourselves out of the partnership of striving side by side when we act in ways that don't live in a manner worthy of the good news of a kingdom that was established in Jesus. So you might be opposing the gospel if. If you work too hard at pursuing your personal security, your circumstantial safety or your earthly luxury more than taking a step of obedience to become who God wants you to be. That's the opposition of the advance of the gospel in one's own life. You might be in opposition to the gospel if you work too hard at pursuing your personal security, your circumstantial safety, and your earthly luxuries more than obeying the next step of what God wants to do in your life. You might be opposing the gospel if you really believe and function as if your money is your money. (laughs) Just straight up. You might be opposing the gospel if 
You value more what you get from people than what you give to them. And with this next one we're preaching. You might be in opposition to the Gospel if you function as if the church is here to serve you rather than the context within which you learn to serve. Dang! You might be in opposition to the Gospel if you function as if the church is here to serve you rather than a context within which you learn to serve. You might be in opposition to the Gospel if you place objects, methods, or traditions on a higher plane than the eternal destinies of people. You might even be in opposition to the Gospel if you have unsaved people you call friends and yet you have not loved them enough to risk speaking about the Gospel with them because you love your personal comfort more than doing for others what Jesus did for you. So let's not, let's not get on to the Oh, it's always them. I submit to you that the greatest opposition of the advance of the gospel are wolves in sheep's clothing who from the inside out are totally unaware that they're not participating in the advance of the gospel because they're building around themselves their own personal kingdom of self-righteousness. Opposition to the gospel doesn't just look like showing up with pitchforks and protest signs. <laughs> Opposing the gospel can be all manner of ways in which we are sadly distracted from job one of living like we are citizens of a kingdom that has good news to share. When we advance the kingdom of self, when we advance the kingdom of self over the advance of the kingdom of God in the lives of others, we are opposing the gospel. When we advance the kingdom of self over the advance of the kingdom of God in the lives of others, we are opposing the gospel. So how do I know if I'm not opposing? <laughs> how do I know if I'm, I'm not opposing the gospel? Are you standing firm? That's Paul's answer. Are you striving together side by side with those who are about the advance of the gospel? Check. Are you not intimidated by those who oppose you? Check. That's why Paul can pray with joy. If that's you, he prays with joy. If that's you, you're experiencing the work of God in you. The he who began a good work in you, God, from last week. Hard truths 
hard truths, but he just keeps bringing it. He just keeps bringing it and showing us what Jesus' focus is as an example to us. Pick it up at verse 29. He says, For it has been granted to you. In other words, it's the grace of God. It's been graced to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. This isn't just about intellectual assent in a, in a particular tenet, uh, tenet or, or, or creed or, or kinds of beliefs about God. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So, so am I opposing the gospel? Are you suffering for his sake? There's your answer. There's your answer. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, Paul says in verse 30, and now here that I still have. We, sh- we, shouldn't just, we shouldn't just accept the fact that we might suffer for Christ. Paul says you should embrace it if you have Jesus-like faith. If you have the faith of the, the, the cross in front of you, you should embrace it as a grace from God. Those are hard prayers to pray. But if you will pray, Lord, do Whatever you possibly must do in me because I want to see you work in me for real. Be ready for breaking. He just keeps on bringing it. Pick it up at 2.1. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Paul's not doubting that these things exist. He's pointing that they're true, pointing out that they're true by raising the question in our minds. He says, is there any encouragement in Christ? Well, yes, there is. Is there any consolation of love? Well, yes, I guess so. Is there any fellowship of the Spirit? Well, yes, there's that too. Is there any affection and compassion? Yes, I suppose so. Well, then if all those things are true, Paul says, verse 2, then complete my joy. It's interesting that's a command. Complete my joy. Keep on growing. Keep on saying yes to the work of God in your life by being of the same mind, the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So the same stuff that he's been hitting over again with one spirit, with one mind, strive together, side by side. Be of the same mind here, he says in 2.2. Have the same love. Be in full accord and of one mind. So, so it's the same mind as what, Paul? The same mind as Christ. That's your answer. Starting in verse 3. The same mind as Christ. A selfless and a sacrificial attitude that, that, that took Jesus to the cross should be in us. This is what cross-like focus looks like. Pick it up at 2-3. This is cross-like focus. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility to count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Oh, that mind. An even death 
on a cross mind. There's a little phrase that happens in the middle of Luke. And it's a transition in the whole gospel. A little phrase that Luke uses as a transition in 951 that sort of illustrates what this cross-like resolve for Jesus looked like. It just says, real simply, as it goes from his Galilean ministry to his Jerusalem ministry, it just says he set his face toward Jerusalem. Do you think Jesus had any conception of what would happen at the end of that? I mean, friends, that's resolve. That's focus. That's knowing that your salvation and mine was at the end of that journey. That's a picture of how much Jesus loves you. He set His face on the cross. Friends, if you say, I love you, Lord, and you're my Savior, you are also saying, I will follow you to that cross. I will take it up daily. I will stand firm. I will maintain that focus when distractions are all around. When people are clamoring for our attention, I will remember the important, the important thing of doing what God's called me to do. Friends, if you said, I follow you, Jesus, then you're saying, I want to take part in that amazing work that God's doing to redeem people to Himself, to set up a, a kingdom where redemption is possible. You're saying, I want, I want to live in a manner worthy of the good news of a Savior whose life, death, and resurrection made possible forever relationship with God. Friends, God gave Himself to us by means of a cross. And we make ourselves available to Him in that same exact way. Let's pray. Lord God, it's mind-boggling truth. that though You deserve every ounce of praise and glory, because You are holy and pure and majestic and righteous, because Your heart is characterized by perfect love. It's a mind-boggling truth to us, Lord, that though You deserve every ounce of praise and of glory, that because You love us, You made Yourself known to us. You made Yourself available to us. You made Yourself available to us by sacrificing Yourself.
And Lord, we want to be men and women who are continually shaped after your image, whose lives look more like your heart, whose behavior is increasingly in keeping with your character and your nature. Lord, we want you to work in us. And we realize that as we say that, we're opening ourselves up to you defeating sin, not just in the person of Jesus 2,000 years ago, but in our hearts today. And so we ask that you'd continue to do surgery on us, that you'd make of us increasingly men and women whose lives look like we are a part of a kingdom that has amazing news to share. We know, Lord, that as we give ourselves to that amazing project, we will experience your work in us and through us. And that will bring an amazing joy that looks like the cross. Continue to work in us and to use us. Give us the encouragement of other believers around us, Lord. From day to day, in our relationship with You, in, in prayer and in word, speak to us so that we would continue to give ourselves to Your work in us. Lord, create a context within this community, Lord, where people will look at this body of believers, this this corporate witness, and they will say, there is a God and He changes lives. We thank You for that opportunity, Lord, and ask that You continue to lead us toward that end. In the name of Your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. We extend to you all, to all of us, the same invitation as we do each week. Because the good news about this kingdom that arrives in Jesus